Well, hello again, everyone. Welcome to another episode of This Show is All About You, a show about all the ways in which you and me can connect as we and what that means for all of us. As always, I am your host, JDK Winnikin. You can find out more about me at my website that is becoming more new and improved every day. That's wordsbyjdk.com. You can also uh, connect with me on my social media feeds at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just look up my last name, W-Y-N-E-K-E-N. You should find me pretty easily. We'd love to hear from you, chat with you, and get some ideas for future shows. Uh, so thanks again, everyone, for, for joining me. And a particular thanks yet again to this show's sponsor, Airway Science for Kids, which is a nonprofit based down in the Portland, Oregon area that provides life and career pathway opportunities for underserved youth in aviation and aerospace. And they do that not only by connecting underserved youth with the hundreds of different career options uh, in aviation and aerospace, uh, but they also do in-house programs, virtual programs, programs in schools, and also uh, create and facilitate relationships uh, for kids in throughout communities uh, to better help students develop their own self-advocacy, uh, take control of the direction of their lives, and work better with their families and their communities. So if you'd like to know more about the great work that they do at Airway Science for Kids, you can check out their website, airsci.org, A-I-R-S-C-I.org, or you can reach out to them directly uh, via email using the address info at airsci.org. So thanks again to them. Welcome, everybody, to episode 64 of this show for May 28th, 2022. And uh, for reasons that I will explain shortly, I have titled today's uh, show, The Way Out of War. And I have out in parentheses because um, we're going to be talking about ways of war, which is an actual thing. Um, why and how nations fight wars, how they envision them, that type of thing. Uh, but the haiku that goes with that will tell you where I'm going on this. And it goes like this. During times of peace, the wise continue to see the need for defense. During times of peace, the wise continue to see the need for defense. And I'll explain what I mean, um, hopefully effectively, <laughs> by the time we're done today. Uh, first of all, uh, give you another reason to stay all the way through. At the end of the show, I have a big announcement uh, about uh, the future of the show that I'm excited to share. But that's just going to be the teaser you get. You got to stay with me the rest of the time for that. So. Anyway, continuing this week, uh, I continue to get a lot of questions uh, from listeners and from readers at my blog about uh, what's going on with the war in Ukraine. And in particular, this week, the big questions were, how is Russia losing this war so clearly? And how could this thing end? Or what's the best way for this war to end without it spilling into something larger that could spiral out of control? Well, and what I'm going to talk about today is, well, the first question is easier to answer. Uh, than the second, because that first question we can base uh, an answer on observable facts right now, what we can see. The second, of course, is more conjecture. Uh, Russia is losing for a number of reasons, uh, primarily because, you know, its modernization of its military, which Putin has spent millions on in the past couple decades, has clearly failed when it comes to large operations. But it goes deeper than that. Uh, The quality of leadership, starting with Putin, but all the way down, uh, to the ground level and what's happening in Ukraine uh, has proved to be problematic. Uh, its organizational structure, its command and control, its communication um, have been really poor. And I would say there's some problem in here in how the Russian military envisions fighting war. We're going to talk a little bit about that uh, today. Um, the But what I'm going to suggest today is that the answers to both those questions come from a similar place. And we'll talk about it in just a minute. 
you know, and people ask me with my background in history, what are, you know, good historical examples uh, to use or to, to, to think about in this context of what's happening? And here's the problem is depending on where you look in history, you can find an example that could give you maybe the answer you really want to see, uh, maybe not the one that's best for a current moment. Uh, there are lots of examples. For example, uh, we could chase after the one month in July 1914 after the Archduke Franz Ferdinand was assassinated and all the countries of Europe were moving closer and closer to what would become World War I. Now, there was a month delay in there between the assassination of the Archduke by Serbian terrorists and Austria-Hungary's subsequent threat against Serbia to do something about it. Uh, in that month, all the European powers, following all their alliances, built up their forces, built up their forces, and it took on almost an inexorable momentum and led into the bloodiest war humanity had ever seen. Of course, the bloodiest one until the next one, which is another historical example. So, like, from that, for that one... You, the lesson could be from World War One is, well, we need to be really careful about our alliances and really careful about momentum building up and bringing us to a point of no return. There's some value in that, but who knows if that's the same situation. In For the Second World War, another example could be that the appeasement of Hitler in the 1930s should not be repeated either. Right? The idea was in the 1930s, just give Hitler all the Germans so they can put them all under one roof, which is what Hitler said he wanted, and then he won't ask for anything else. Well, of course, that turned out not to be Hitler's uh, aim in the end, and appeasement has been a dirty word ever since. And so that historical example, if you go to that, would give the exact opposite lesson, quote-unquote. World War I is you do not appease dictators, and you need to face them down and stop them sooner rather than later. Or, maybe closer to our own time, we could take a look at the 1979-1980 invasion of Afghanistan by the Soviet Union, which was successful at first, but then because the U.S. fed the insurgency by the Mujahideen by sending in small arms weapons, Stinger anti-aircraft missiles, and that type of thing, the Soviet Union eventually lost air superiority over Afghanistan to a country with no air force. So that example could be a historical you know, reinforcement of the idea that the status quo of what NATO is doing now in Ukraine might be the best option. And then, of course, it, that, this entire thing on drawing on history relies on the fact that you're doing so in an accurate sense because Putin seems to be drawing on a very big misunderstanding of the history of the Soviet Union and Russia uh, by basing his approaches seemingly on a mythological version of how Russia and how and why Russia was so victorious in World War II and maybe more recently on how he subdued Chechnya in the 2000s, effectively by grinding them down year after year after year. And by the way, just as a quick aside, I would call upon writers everywhere to stop referring to Vladimir Putin as a student of Russian history. If he is a student of Russian history, he's not very getting very good grades at the moment. <laughs> so let's maybe not go there. He's drawing all the wrong lessons uh, in that sense. Hey, now, each of these historical examples, of course, is worth considering because certainly what is happening now is uh, of major concern for a lot of reasons. And history can be a bit of a guide, sometimes more of a cautionary tale. And it is not the only factor in how decisions should be made because, of course, every decision in the moment, every situation in the moment is unique in and of itself. And so there isn't exact parallels at any point in the past or even right now for, uh, for that matter. 
So I thought in that sense, looking at maybe if we took a look at what I think are some key differences between how Russia and the West, generally speaking, fight war uh, and envision it and how what that looks like in their militaries might be helpful. And now everything I'm about to mention today will be by very by necessity of time, pretty general. But it's worth saying that everything I'm discussing is constant sources of debate, discussion, publication uh, among scholars, uh, experts in schools and universities and think tanks. These are longstanding conversations and debates and they change over time. And some I have some good friends from graduate school who are top notch military historians who are talking about these things on a daily basis. And so this is a larger conversation that, you know, I can help plug you into. And later at my website, wordsbyjdk.com, I'll be putting up some links to um, some individuals, some articles, some podcasts, things like that, that go into greater depth here, which um, hopefully you will find helpful. So with that in mind, let me summarize this down for you. I think if we're going to talk about the differences between how Russia and the West envision the ways of war, and by that, why you fight them, how you fight them, how you prepare for them, how you train for them. There are some fundamental differences. But I think for both of the questions that are being asked, how is Russia losing this war and how do we keep it from becoming something worse? We can bring everything down to the differences between Russia and the West around four elements. Empowerment, cooperation, integration, and what I'll call plausible deterrence. Those four things working together. Now, if that sounds real heady, just bear with me. Okay, I'll do the best I can to make sense of it. Those four things, empowerment, cooperation, integration, plausible deterrence, really run through the planning, the training, the uh, decisions on logistics, supply, and how militaries run. But also, they're key elements in how nations work together to combat common threats. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about it from the military point of view. Um, to illustrate this, perhaps a story is the best place to start. And it's a true story. It's one I read about over the weekend. And it was an article about a, an Air National Guard, an American Air National Guard group, the 144th Fighter Wing of the California Air National Guard. And the story over the weekend was running because this particular unit have for 29 years been doing running regular exercises with Ukrainian fighter pilots from the Ukrainian Air Force. For 29 years, so pretty much since the fall of the Soviet Union, this unit had been working with elements of the Ukrainian Air Force to train them in sort of Western tactics of aerial combat. And that's fighting plane to plane or attacking targets on the ground or how to best defend uh, targets, locations, ships, that type of thing. And so it was meant to help modernize the Ukrainian military coming out of they had been part of the Soviet Red Army. This was to give a newly uh, independent Ukraine a chance to revitalize and modernize its military around Western lines. And as I mentioned last week, a lot of the countries of the Warsaw Pact and the former Soviet Union wanted to integrate more towards Western uh, ideas and Western practices. And in ways of war, that was that was also the case. So in this story, it talks about these fighter pilots now, um, and they've been training with Ukrainian pilots for 29 years. So they know personally, these pilots that right now are flying in Ukraine, flying against uh, the Russian Air Force, and are highly outnumbered. Estimates are right now the Ukrainian Air Force has about 55 fighter jets 
uh, that they're able to fight with. And the Russians have about 10 times the amount uh, in that. And of course, everyone asks the question about how is it possible that a force that outnumbered uh, can be doing so well against the Russian Air Force. And the Russian Air Force still hasn't gained air superiority over the country after a month. And I would say, you know, if we're looking for historical examples, in the Battle of Britain, the Royal Air Force was severely uh, undermanned, I should say, (laughs) and outnumbered uh, by the German uh, Luftwaffe, but still ended up winning that battle. So numbers themselves don't just tell the story. Certainly the motivation of the Ukrainian pilots matters, right? Very much matters, just like it matters for the Ukrainian soldiers fighting on the ground. They're fighting for their country. They're fighting for their families. Literally, uh, their motivation is much higher than is the motivation of the Russian army, which is mostly conscripts, and we're finding out most of them don't even know what they're doing there. So that's part of it. But also it's this training that these pilots have received for 29 years with this unit, as well as in other partnerships with other units in the United States, as well as in the rest of NATO and that type of thing. These exercises have been going on. These joint, integrated, cooperative, there's those words, exercises have been going on for years. And so they fight differently. They know that in combat, they were probably, if they were going to probably fight the Russians, they were going to be outnumbered. So none of this is necessarily a a surprise. But what's also important in this story is that these guys are not just proud of these fighter pilots who these American pilots said, these Ukrainian pilots are as good as us. They're just flying different equipment. They're as good as us. But they're also friends with them. There's personal connections. One pilot, as a matter of fact, in this Air National Guard unit met his wife on one of their visits uh, during exercises in Ukraine years ago. And so this is highly personal. And so there's a human connection to this, you know, wondering how they're doing and all of those types of things. And that, that type of support matters. And the other side of this, right, is Russia doesn't have integrated programs of cooperation with this goal of defense integration uh, the same way that the West does. Every member nation of NATO, however, is a part of these programs. The most famous in the, in the Air Force, at least, uh, in the air fighting world, is the so-called red flag exercises that take place every year down in the deserts of Nevada and Arizona, where countries from around the world, allied with the United States, NATO and otherwise, come in and they all work together in this massive uh, sort of mock operation, combat operation, uh, where they learn tactics, they go up against one another. It's the best going up against the best, and they make each other better. And it integrates, through this cooperation, all these different countries to work together if push comes to shove. And it empowers each one of those nations to be getting the most out of their pilots, the most out of their aircraft and equipment, and to share ideas and to work towards common goals. And that you combine all those three three things together, you get that fourth thing a very powerful, plausible force of deterrence should war ever break out. And so that's the key thing here. And this exists at every level of the military in the West, is this type of, these things working together, these types of programs, right? So it's a military force that really knows how to fight. And on one level, the hope is because they're that good, they'll never be called upon to have to fight in the first place. That's effective deterrence. Now, second in this is in the Western way of war, if we want to call it that, at least at the point, there's a strong focus on empowering every level of rank uh, to the best of their ability, from the lowest private all the way up to the highest general, to make independent decisions as much as they're allowed, 
within the chain of command to take initiative smartly yet creatively depending on changing conditions. And one of the great rules of war is, no matter what the plan is, as soon as combat begins, big portions of the plan, if not all of it, are going to go out the window. And so training here matters. And what we're seeing in Russia, the number of people are commentating on in the media, is that Russia's command and control structure is too highly centralized. They have not empowered their soldiers on the ground, particularly non-commissioned officers, the ones that are really leading small groups of troops. They've not empowered them to operate independently. Instead, in order for them to branch away from the design plan, they have to work all the way up the command chain to a colonel or general at the far end. So not only does that on the ground, when you're under fire being shot at, not only does that take a lot of time and you can get killed and get a lot of your comrades killed, but if you have poor communication, like the Russians have, sometimes you don't get answers at all, or in the case of Russia, whose um, encrypted communications are running into no end of trouble, that's how the Ukrainians find out where your generals are and drop bombs on them. And it's one reason why Russian generals and high-level colonels have been getting killed at an alarming rate uh, for Russia's point of view in all of this. So now the U.S. has learned lessons from this throughout the Cold War, Vietnam, and elsewhere. Um, On the other side of that war, the idea of empowering soldiers on the ground effectively to make decisions in pursuit of combat objectives, but ones that don't necessarily require going all the way up the chain of command, all of those became enshrined in the U.S. military after Vietnam as did another important factor here. A really important way to empower your soldiers is to make sure the ones that join your army are there because they want to be. The United States went to a completely professional military force, all-volunteer military force after Vietnam. The majority of uh, men fighting in the Russian army are conscripts. Now, European countries, many of them in NATO, have obligatory military service for Uh, for their individuals or civil service. Uh, But still, the ranks of those who stay in the military, it's a highly professionalized system. And a professionalized military system allows and creates, by very definition, the empowerment that we're talking about for each member, no matter what their rank is, to know exactly what they can do, to know exactly how to respond in various situations, and to think creatively and not have to worry necessarily, about being fully punished for going against the grain. And all of this, of course, underscores something else in all of this that I think is important. We're seeing very clearly a big difference between a military, in the case of Russia's, that is uh, really, really linked to the power and will and demands of one person and the importance of (laughs) separation of the military in Western powers um, from that type of direct influence, right? Civilian control of the military in the United States, as well as in other Western democracies, is standard. But as we saw in a number of cases in the previous five years, the militaries had to say no to directives or ideas from civilian leadership that it thought went against its code of conduct and went against its mandate. So having that type of control rests on there being a professionalism and empowerment and a cooperation among those military entities to prevent the type of thing that Putin's trying to do with his military. Okay, now, all of this taken together, the training that Ukrainian pilots and soldiers have been been having with Western powers for a number of years, particularly since 2014, since Russia moved into the eastern parts of Ukraine, uh, the Ukrainian military has been doing exercises and getting training 
with uh, Western militaries has given them a huge advantage. And it's not just because the weapons are really good from the West, and it's not just because the Ukrainians are fighting on their home soil. They've been preparing for this for years. The combination of all those things together has made the Ukrainian uh, military a formidable fighting force in putting up significant defense. Now, those same principles, empowerment, cooperation, integration, plausible deterrence, they extend to this, uh, this difference between Russia and the United States in terms of technology, for example. The technology that the West is using comes from competition, the sharing of technological know-how and manufacturing between Western nations. Companies have to bid for government contracts, so they have to produce better quality weapons and technology. Russia does not have a history of that going back to its Soviet days and doesn't have the same type of integration into, uh, into the world economy, particularly around military equipment. And so spare parts, um, technological innovation and improvements uh, have been slower for Russia. So their equipment isn't up to the same standards as Western in most cases, even though uh, they do make some good military equipment. All of this then cascades into better things. If you have better integration of all those things, you have better logistical planning, how to, where and how to best send your resources. And the U.S. has been doing this for decades now, trying to figure this, how to send all this material out around the world to its multiple areas of responsibility and interest. Russia's far behind there, too. And in terms of defense alliances, NATO is built on all of those principles I mentioned. Empowerment, cooperation, integration, and plausible deterrence. And we are seeing the results of that in a positive way in the sense that NATO's cohesion and working together is evident and has been for a month. Right? So as much as history can be a guide here, uh, it can impose limits on us. In the right now, these ways of war, which are informed by history or a misunderstanding of history in the case of Putin, these matter a lot as well. Right? But it's important to make sure we kind of keep those things in balance. Right? So my thoughts on this right now, in the last few minutes, is that plausible deterrence that NATO has created because of all these things that are working within their countries, this integration, this cooperation, this empowerment, has created a plausible defense. So the fact that NATO is holding the line right now, literally trusting those four principles, are advantageous. And because of the nature of Putin's war, NATO has also the moral high ground (laughs) in all of this. So what they were doing, shipping in weapons, supplying all of that, keeping economic sanctions on on Putin, continuing to hold and point out the moral position here is to their advantage. Now, certainly that doesn't determine what Putin is going to do and conversations will continue to have to happen. But it seems to be shifting a bit in that last week, uh, plausibly or possibly, Russia sort of moved the goalposts on what they said they were doing in Ukraine in the first place. (laughs) Well, actually... We're here just to liberate the eastern part of the country. Uh, That isn't true, of course, but it could suggest they are scaling back from what they're trying to do. And it was just announced earlier today that uh, that Ukraine and Russia may be uh, meeting in Turkey soon for ceasefire talks. And so uh, while that's certainly a positive development, uh, that could take weeks. So in the meantime, this defense, the importance of important defense um, is clear. The fact that NATO has trained together for generations, the fact that they're, they're well-equipped, their uh, soldiers are empowered, all those things, we're really glad about that right now and should be. 
And despite all the debates and the problems that those militaries can have internally and the challenges that uh, come about when they are used offensively, as the United States found out in Iraq uh, a few years ago, while all those debates need to happen, it's in times like this where we must all take a look and, and ask the big questions about what does a rightful defense look like? Right? right now, it's about holding the line as much as possible, which is why it's really important, President Biden, to be careful what you say <laughs> and how you say it okay? and uh, that type of thing to not unnecessarily inflame uh, the situation. Hey, so I will add more to this because I have more to say about it at my website, Words by JDK. Uh, you can look for that blog post on Wednesday. I'll add more, a few more thoughts that I didn't get to today. Uh, as well as some resources for you to look at. But now it's time, really quickly, for my big announcement. So, oh, thank you, Eric. (laughs) Big announcement is starting on April 18th, everyone. This show is all about you. We'll be expanding to an hour-long format. Not just a half hour, but an hour long. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much, (laughs) people. Uh, Now, for those of you who are listening to this as a podcast, this doesn't change anything. It will upload, as always, You'll just have more of me to listen to, I guess. And a little bit of a different format. I'll be bringing in guests every week uh, for, in ways that I'll explain in the coming weeks. Uh, for those of you who are listening live, though, um, I will be moving from 1150 AM KKNW in Seattle over to AM 880 KIXI uh, in Seattle, 3 o'clock on Mondays, the exact same time. So those of you listening live will need to shift stations, but those of you listening as a podcast, uh, you don't need to do anything differently. Um, I'm excited about it. The show is going to have guests. There'll be a little bit of different format. Um, and it's going to be about really connected conversations uh, with people of, from all different backgrounds, of different interests, that type of thing. So more will be coming out about that. But I'm really excited about that change. I'm really excited about that opportunity. I'm really appreciative to uh, Hubbard Radio for giving me that opportunity. Appreciative to my producer, Stacy Heller, and everybody else who's been involved in this, Airway Science for Kids, uh, for helping make this happened. So that on April 18th, so a couple more weeks, a few more weeks here for a half hour KKNW and then an hour long starting after that. And I already have my first guest lined up and I'm not going to tell you who it is, but I'm really excited uh, for that first guest. And then I have a few more that I'm lining up as well. All right. So thank you everyone for joining me today on another episode of this show is all about you. I look forward to seeing you next week. Check out my, uh, my website words by JDK.com on Wednesday, for some more thoughts on this. And until I see you next week, chins up everyone. <laughs>